0: Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds and those who don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines.
1: Welcome back to the SAS Fuel Podcast, where your marketing hits like an electric guitar power chord, loud, proud, and impossible to ignore. I'm your host, Jeff Mains. Out B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight figures and or a stellar exit, and that is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft a business you're proud of and a life of impact and freedom that you absolutely love. So here we are at the edge of December, toes right on the edge, peering over into the final month of the year. And you have already heard some of my favorite Christmas songs. I've been out and about even before I fired up my own Christmas playlist. And two of my favorites that you should definitely check out. Uh, One of them you've heard of and one of them I'll bet you haven't. The one you haven't heard of is a guy named Gary Hoey. Fantastic guitarist, great instrumentals and cool album titles like Ho Hoey. How can you go wrong with that, right? And the second is one you probably have heard of, and one of my all-time favorites, and that is Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And uh, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of a theme here. I like a little guitar. Okay, maybe I like a lot of guitar. And maybe that's not your thing. If that's not your thing, check out Mannheim Steamroller. Some really good stuff. And the season wouldn't be complete for my kids without the Chipmunks Christmas. And that might be part of my doing, or (laughs) actually all my doing grew up with it and now they hated it then they love it now i guess it reminds them of so many years i made them listen to that and then of course my wife's favorite is being crosby christmas we're pretty well rounded all together from sweet picking guitars to chipmunks to a world-class crooner pretty cool stuff all very different styles and i think we can actually learn something from that as founders Standing out in a crowded marketplace is like trying to be heard at a rock concert. You are either the lead singer or you're just lost in the crowd, another voice that nobody's hearing because it's so loud. And in a world it's like that out there too and we've seen that over this holiday season. Every billboard, inbox, social media feed, chorus of look at me, buy this, look at this, awesome sale. And so how do you grab the spotlight and keep it, especially in an environment that's super noisy in this time of year? So I bet most of you have started shopping already, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, uh, always big deals, big sales, and retailers try really hard to stand out and compete for those dollars. And some shout louder, some have doorbusters, and others are a little more creative and long-term. And there's a company out there called Patagonia, and I think about them often when I think about standing out. And so they are a company that sells outdoor gear. A lot of companies do that, right? But they've done something that is really different. They didn't just sell outdoor gear, clothes, or things like that. They really sold a rebellion against fast fashion and a pledge to save our wild spaces. So things that most companies are really about sales and we're going to give you some awesome deal or do something. Patagonia is taking a different stand and where they really stand for something. They weren't just a brand, but really became a battle cry for a movement. And now that's not just standing out. That's really being a beacon. It's not instant savings by now, but it inspires lifetime loyalty. So it's picking up the dollars now, but it's for a lifetime. It's not just for a sale until 11 AM and then they're done. So top that, it's building a brand like that. Then they gave away the company. The founder, been around for a long time, 50-year-old company or so, multi-billion dollars, gave it away. That is all in commitment. That kind of standing out, that makes people pay attention. So how can you be the Patagonia in your field? Here's a a three-step gig. First, we want to craft your unique story. And this is your anthem, your rallying cry. It's not just what you do, it's why you do it. Patagonia championed environmental activism, turning every purchase into an act of conservation. So find the story that connects deeply with your audience. Don't just copy somebody else because somebody else didn't. Hey, that's cool. But what really resonates with you? What resonates with your audience? What would you give away your company for? it should really stir emotions inside you, spark conversation, and be as authentic as a vintage vinyl record in a world of auto tune Second, we want to innovate relentlessly. And here's where you play lead guitar on a flaming stage. Innovation isn't just about being different. It's about being better. Just being different doesn't instantly mean better. I mean, sometimes being different is just weird but focus on better for your customers, better for your community, better for the world. Whether it's a product, service, the way you run your business, make it so revolutionary that it can't help but stand out. It's about creating the, I've never seen anything like this before movement. Now I've talked about the service levels at Chick-fil-A. That is something that really stands out. Disney, happiest place on earth. At this stage, some people are saying it's the most expensive place on earth. Companies like Uber and Google, They've become verbs, and we don't call for a car service or look that up on our phone. We're going to order an Uber. We're going to take an Uber somewhere. We're going to Uber to the restaurant or to whatever. We don't search for things online anymore. We Google them. They've become verbs because it's just so synonymous with what we want, and those brands stand out. And third, foster a tribe. Every rock star out there has fans, but legends Have tribes. Think about some of the the biggest stars that you know. They're not just like big stars. They've really built a a tribe. One that comes to mind is uh, Taylor Swift. You've got a, a tribe. They're Swifties. And this is something like the music don't. She's done some great things from a brand perspective and made some incredible business decisions as well that have put her where she is. I mean, absolutely, she has built a community around her brand. And you need to do that with your brand as well engage your community, listen to them, make them feel like they're part of your journey. And uh, next week, we're actually talking with Adam Robinson from retention.com and he's done a great job with that of building a community around the brand and, and following his journey. That's what you want to do. Take a look at what he's doing and then that's what you want to do with your business as well. But when your customers feel like they belong to something bigger, they don't just buy your product. They champion your cause. They're all in. They're completely invested. And that's where you get that long tail. You get that commitment. You get that retention over the long term. And if you need help with building community, check out the episode with Lloyd Lobo where he talks about community led growth and just lays out the strategy right there. Great stuff. So who's ready to crank up the volume and make some noise in this crowded marketplace? Remember, it's not just about being the loudest. It's about being the most unforgettable. And we do that through impact and creating an experience for our tribe. Our founder on Tuesday was Andrew Swyler, CEO of Lantaria and strategic maestro in the HR tech world. My two big takeaways from the episode were, one, how they went all in on an underserved niche and were also able to tap into a global sales force. And the second was about how he saw leadership changing as the company expanded, things that he had to do to grow in order so the company could continue to grow. Our expert guest last week was John Barrows. He is a driving force behind JB Sales, and he brought real time expertise on SaaS sales, not just teaching, but actively selling, personally prospecting, and managing deals all the time in this environment because things have really changed over the last year. So, if you need a sales boost, this is the ticket. You missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is Mark Donigan, a virtual CMO for early and growth stage tech companies. He is well-versed in B2B SaaS, and Mark helps companies build nimble, highly efficient marketing teams that routinely outperform larger marketing departments. I love that. Leveraging marketing and growth tactics that work, like category design, Mark turns visionary products into market leaders. If you are poised to disrupt and dominate, Mark is the strategist who will turbocharge your journey from groundbreaking idea to market triumph. Welcome your new favorite CMO, Mark Donegan. Hey Mark, welcome to SAS Fuel. Jeff, it's great to be here. I'm really stoked for our conversation. So you are a master marketer and virtual CMO. How did you end up in, in marketing to start with? And then how did you become a CMO?
0: Interesting journey. So how I ended up in marketing, let's see. When I was 12 years old, I discovered my school's Apple II computer and through a book that an uncle gave me. In fact, it was right in between, I guess it would have been my f- sixth and seventh grade. And I, I think it was a birthday present actually. It was a book on the basic programming language. Now I'm also dating myself. <laughs> so I started on Lesson like, Plus, So there we go. Basic. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> But I that book, and really, in fact, I was I, I tell this story now somewhat frequently because it, it's the genesis of how I got into marketing. So I'm gonna connect the dots here. But but yeah, so I got that book and it just blew my mind that I could write a sequence of what sort of looked like English, but commands and the computer could do stuff. Yeah. Just blew my mind. So Anyway, I jumped in, and most nights after school, the math teacher would stay an extra hour and a half grading papers, and so he would let me sit in the back of the room, and then eventually he'd say, ah, oh, Mark, I need to go home now, <laughs> you know, so I would leave. <laughs> so I had a great time, and eventually, of course, got my own computer, et cetera. But I say that because I clearly have this technical this technology, bent. my dad is an engineer. Uh, he's retired now, but he, he's an engineer by training. And yeah, I go off to college, and of course, it was a foregone conclusion that I would go into a computer science program, which I did. I I got halfway through it, and I realized maybe I wanted to be a rock star. (laughs) So I dropped out. I went to music school. (laughs) And then I realized, oh, wow, poor starving musicians. That really is a thing. (laughs) Like it doesn't matter how great a player you are. And don't get me wrong. I did play at a pretty high level, but I was by no means, I don't know, world class. So anyway, I went, what am I going to (laughs) do? I don't, I I guess I could go back to computer science. I don't really see myself sitting in a desk pounding code. I'm probably not going to make much of a living as a musician. So what do I do? So I found my way into sales. And in reality, I've been (laughs) working my way. My first job in high school was at a Apple reseller, and this was before Apple stores. So, you know, I started down this sales path and as I grew my career and ended up actually getting into a reasonable level where I had as many as 35, 40 sellers working for me, a mix of full-time sales reps and independent sales reps. We had a hybrid sales model, go-to-market model, driving $30, $35, 40000000 million a year in, in business. And so that was my path, having a great time. But along the way, I found that I also was either grabbing the reins of marketing or the job involved. Hey, Mark, you're going to run sales and marketing, which in a lot of these organizations, marketing was a single person or it was whatever I did. <laughs> but along the way, I just really found myself leaning into the, the strategy, the tactics, wanting to really understand like why is it that this message seems to move people more than this other message? Why yeah. is it when we just dump product features that It doesn't seem to do much, but when you tell a story or when you're able to connect to a problem that, and you're not even really talking about the product, but you're talking about the problem. Why is it that then that's when (laughs) you get a positive response? And let me tell you, when you're in charge of revenue, you notice these things. Yeah, that then became a pivot point. And as most of our careers, I think, go, you look back and you say, oh, it was super obvious. This job led to that job and this position to that position and this experience to that. In reality, some of it was, I don't want to say completely serendipity, but I think think everyone can relate to to, to being there. Yeah. So where I am today is, yes, I'm commonly... Introduced as, and if you go to my website, you will see the words virtual scene you know, all over it. So I definitely refer to myself as that, but really what I do is more holistic. And that is that I help companies win at go-to-market. GTM. And for much of technology today, and I only deal with B2Bs. I'm not a B2C marketer. God love them. That is a whole different skill set and experience base. And that's not where my experience aligns. But I do have a tremendous amount of experience and knowledge, especially in long sales cycles, technical. Products that have a very technical integration component to them. The buying committee is multi-stakeholder, meaning that this isn't, oh, we just need to go high and go low to get a little bit of support, but go high and to the C-suite and win the deal. So- I've just developed a real somewhat unique mix, at least I find it's a little bit unique, where I can navigate this incredibly tricky sales cycle, but yet the pot of gold is pretty valuable. so typically these are deals that are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to to low millions and generally on some sort of a of a reoccurring type sales model. So that's my journey from from Apple II at twelve years old to uh, to virtual CMO.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice go to market strategies. You talked about that, and yeah, that's a a really key component. So, Mm. what makes a great go to
0: market strategy?
1: Yeah. So,
0: yeah, uh, it is a great question, and frankly, it's the right question because a lot of times founders, and and again, I also largely work, I I don't get too involved in, so we say pre-revenue companies, but I'm definitely involved in startups. So typically in that that four to five to six to seven million to $10 million range is where I get involved. Because what I find is that as soon as you hit about 5 million, uh, and this is a generalization, but as most generalizations are, it's generally true. You get to $5 million and it does not mean that you've got your full go-to-market figured out, that your product is fully ironed out. There's still a, a lot of holes. There's a lot of kinks, but you're doing something right. It's just, with very few exceptions, it's just not that possible to get to $5 million and just stumble into it you're doing something. So your product works, it's serving a need, you're connecting to a market. And I also find that at about $5 million for a lot of businesses is when they can start to attract the capital to really invest in what it's going to take to scale or to build out that sales team or to build out the marketing function or do all of it. So just for context, that's what that's where I get involved. It makes sense. What I find is that go-to-market still for a lot of founders, a lot of CEOs at that juncture of their business is viewed as how we sell, i.e. we primarily have a PLG-led motion. We have sales reps backed up by some sort of PLG or, or freemium, which is PLG is the new freemium. Or there's, there's other paradigms, but it's, oh, that's my go-to-market. And so they describe, oh, our go-to-market is we have six sales reps. They're strategically located in these areas because we found we have geographical proximity so that there's a need for that. And then we've got, we're starting to tag on this PLG. And they're like, that's our go-to-market. My response generally is, okay, that's a structure.
1: That's not your go-to-market.
0: That's how you sell stuff. Yeah, because let's step back and look at this from a customer point of view. And this right here, Jeff, is the number one aha that I hope listeners jot down or at least make a mental note of. Is it so much of what we do in business, I would argue, but especially in marketing, is from the company's point of view, not the customer? Yep. And so we wonder why we get into sales processes that are never ending. We wonder why, seemingly, sometimes it's almost a little random as to why a deal closes and why it doesn't. Right. You know, like, and I absolutely abhor this whole phrase of, 50% of marketing works. We just don't know which 50 I can't remember who it's attributed to. If I recall, it's someone super smart in, in marketing many years ago. I would dare not say that they didn't know what they're doing or didn't know marketing. However, that is a horrible way to operate. And yet, right. no one certainly says they operate that way, but we do. And right. if you think about it, the go-to-market function from the buyer's perspective all of a sudden the path becomes not crystal clear but certainly more clear as to where we should be investing how we're going to build a repeatable process to be able to affect and impact the buying decision in a positive way and so this really is one of it's not the only but it is one of the most basic elements that i find whether it's big company medium-sized company, small company, earlier stage, middle stage of their growth and development, or they have a 30-year pedigree, been in their market for a long time and are considered a leader. I find that there's elements of this across. Just not understanding how the buyer really buys and makes, makes a decision today. Yeah, and that's,
1: I think, changed a lot, certainly in the last 20 years, 10 years, and I think even the last four or five years in in Mm. post-pandemic. I think that has continued to change, especially in the B2B world, way, way different than it was 10 years ago and significantly different than even five years ago because information is still available.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know what? that. And and so I was going to suggest, Jeff, let's talk about why this is because, okay, <laughs> fine. Some listeners are going, yep, I'm with you. And I even know it for myself. If I'm really honest, maybe we don't know. How did we get here? And then how, where do we go from here? What In do words, we do with it? Yeah. What do we do with this? It's so one thing to know that I'm a little sick. It's another thing to know, like, what do I do <laughs> right. to get better? Yeah. Diagnosing so, the problem is only part of it. We need yeah, 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 exactly. So, you actually gave a major clue when you said that information is now freely available. And this really, I think, is one, of the, is one of the biggest shifts that has contributed to the fact that I saw some Gartner research. I think I saw something from Forrester, and I'm sure all of the, the big B2B analyst firms have probably put out their own version of this. And, and the numbers are not exact, but they are definitely in the range. Gartner, I think, found that a buying committee was something like more than 50% of the way through a buying decision before they even contacted the first vendor. Now think about that impact to your buying process. Right. What it means is, so there's good news and bad news in this. So the good news is that if you happen to be the category king or queen, or you're the the leader in that space, odds are you got a phone call, Okay. So that's good. (laughs) That's great. Because also the odds are that that they only reached out to two, three, maybe four companies. Nobody has time to go through and interview 12 different companies, right? So you're on a short list. Hey, congratulations. Now, that doesn't mean that you kick back and you're done, but congratulations. But the bad news is, is that for most of us, especially building new companies, we're not on the short list, not known. Maybe we are known, but we're not quite trusted yet. And I don't mean trusted as in they wonder if we're ethical or trusted like they're saying, hey, these people seem like they they actually have a really good technology, they have a good product, right. but right. wow, are they going to be around in five years? to service me yeah. are they going to be able to keep it updated etc 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 which yep. anybody building a new company understands this very well it's, an, it's you're, a, n- you're not it's at a the huge... point yet
1: where nobody got fired for buying ibs you're not there yet yeah
0: that's exactly yeah. right yeah so this information ubiquity is contributing to the fact that if you if we are not making All of the information that is required for someone to arrive at a buying decision, freely available. And by the way, what I mean by that, some marketers are going to bristle. Stop gating your content. Mm. (laughs) Stop requiring forms. Stop putting up these artificial hurdles. Oh, but that's, but how are we going to collect leads? Stop it. (laughs) A buyer... (laughs) is in the market to solve a problem. If you give them the sufficient information for them to not go all the way to handing you a $700,000 annual reoccurring PO. Okay. That's too much of a stretch, but going to the next step, which might just be go to your website and request an initial sales an initial demonstration, maybe, or to just send an email or Shoot. Nowadays, so much business is done with a simple LinkedIn DM. Somebody goes and they do a little, they do a little search. They find out, oh, who's the head of product? Who's the head of sales? Who's the head of marketing? Who's the CEO? Then next thing you know, this message comes in from somebody that you got to look them up and then you figure out, wow, this is amazing, right? Hey, find your company. Love to see if we could talk more about it. Okay. Yeah. And so this whole idea that information is freely available then right there says that if we understand that the buyers are out there doing their own research, they're out there talking to peers They're I've heard it called dark social, which dark yeah. social is really just Mark Donegan. And and Jeff Maine's just talking on a forum, and I say, "Hey Jeff, what are you guys doing?" By the way, for for a data management tool, we're really having a hard time. We're looking at these three or four vendors. What are you guys doing? And you say, yeah. "Oh man, funny you should ask. We built it in house. It's a disaster. We just adopted fill in the blank." What do you think I'm going to do with that? Am I just going to go? You, oh, you're going to go check out that company? A hundred percent at a minimum. Yeah. While we're talking or right after the call, I'm going to type, I'm going to go to Google and guess what? That's going to show up as a brand search. And then guess what? Somebody's going to go, see, SEO is working. That wasn't SEO. (laughs) That's called dark social. That's called, that's called word, good old word of mouth. Yeah, we can continue to unpack more of the tactics, but this is really critical and it's very essential for marketing teams to to understand just where buyer's at.
1: Do you have a plan to make 2024 your best year ever? You want to create one alongside other B2B SaaS founders? The Champion Leadership Group, we take clients through an awesome strategic planning process every December, and this year we're opening it up and this is your invitation to join us. Together, we will lay down the train tracks for all of next year. So you can just plow ahead full speed. And I also give you a process you can use with your own team to get great results. And they can create their own individual plans that tie into your bigger plan overall. This was a complete and total game changer for me when I started doing this in my companies. We call it your best year ever. It's free for you since you're listening or watching. Check it out at the events tab at championleadership.com. You can learn more about that and about how we help B2B SaaS founders build amazing companies and achieve premium exits, if that's what they want. So come hang out with us. Start the year like you never have before. You can get all details championleadership.com. Check out the events tab and join us for your best year ever
0: and every market does have its its shall we say special special cases so for example i focus largely in an area that is video streamings i work with companies that are selling technology software solutions to everybody from comcast to Netflix to Amazon to go around, and so all video solutions. One thing that is very common about that sales cycle is there is always going to be an be some sort of a evaluation, and the evaluation can be: does the product work in the way we expect it to? Does it deliver the quality we need? Does it? How easy is it to integrate? There's depending on on the scale and the scope and what the solution is, it can look different. But that's one of the gates. So if you understand that and you understand it for your product, then you have fully baked into it when an evaluation or some might call it a POC, it may look like a formal POC, maybe there's different ways to look at it, but you're going to have this clearly defined and then you're going to be mapping your content journey. You're going to be mapping your marketing efforts against each one of these gates And if you do that, now the buyer who's out there not talking to you yet, but they're in market and maybe they're in market, maybe you don't, maybe it's completely invisible to you, but they're able to consume, they're able to get the information, they're able to get the data in a more technically advanced product. They probably can't without your assistance, test the product or use the product. But if you happen to be in a market or your product lends itself to that make it as freely available as possible. Let them get their hands on it. And this may or may not look like PLG. Some listeners will say, that sounds like PLG to me. It might be, but maybe it's something different. Maybe you're still in the enterprise, but maybe there's a way for you to give access to, even if it's a real limited subset of function or that the buyer can get their hands on even that small, narrow portion of the product without ever contacting you maybe setting up an account. So they give you an email and a name and some basic information. But other than that, they could self-service and then that helps get them to the point where they say, wow, like I have an idea what this can do This is really powerful. Let's examine this further. We need to get a meeting. So
1: I understand not gating content. And if we don't do that, at what point do we have the information we need to engage the buyer and and reach out? How do we get that? Do you have a a way to do that? Or is there a particular point along the journey?
0: I have. Yeah. So let's talk about this because um, this is controversial. Uh, It's controversial. I love controversy. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) So let's be controversial. The uh, marketers are like, but. My main proof that I'm doing something is my MQLs, and, yes, and then exactly. maybe further my SQLs. So you're telling now, how do I prove <laughs> I'm doing anything? We're taking away the vanity metric. Yeah, and so here, so if somebody is marketing right now in an environment where they're primarily being measured by MQLs, SQLs, I can almost guarantee that there's friction now it may be everybody's polite in front of each other but everybody in the company knows there's friction between sales and marketing Mm -hmm. i can almost guarantee you in fact i can say in nearly 10 out of 10 cases why is that because marketing is hitting their vanity metric number let's just call it mqls okay sales is not hitting revenue sales is looking at marketing and saying, yeah, we're not hitting revenue because these leads stink. Half these people, they won't even return our calls. When, they, when we do get them on the phone, they're like, oh, I downloaded an ebook. I think I remember doing that. Who are you again? Yeah. And then marketing is pointing back at sales going, sales just doesn't know how to sell anything. And that's why. Right. And there's right. tension here. Now, guess what? Unfortunately, Sales is more correct in this finger pointing than marketing, because Hmm. guess what? We have got to stop measuring success by somebody downloaded an ebook. Right. We have to. And if you don't understand the buyer's journey, you're still measuring success that way. All you have to do as a marketer is go out into the market and just, if you have opportunity, ask Ask buyers, hey, let me ask you, you just completed this, this sales process. I know we worked with you for nine months, took another three months to close the deal. So we've been, we've gotten to know each other really well. Let me ask you, we publish white papers. We publish extensive case studies on and on and on all these collaterals. Could you explain to me, just give me a really quick overview. What role did those various collateral pieces play in you making a decision? If you're not asking, we're making a whole lot of assumptions. Yep. And what you're likely going to hear is this. You're going to hear, yeah, they were actually super useful. Only one or two people actually read the white paper out of our six or eight or 10 that were involved in the process. But it was very useful. It gave us a good understanding of your technology. Hey, your case studies, everybody largely looked at those. And that was really significant to us and this and that. But you know what? At the end of the day. And then what they're going to describe to you is that they didn't call you because of your case study. They didn't, they weren't suddenly in market because they download the white paper. It's again, they're more than 50% of the way through the buying process before they actually call you. And those are supporting materials. They are, I am not suggesting that, oh, you stop producing them. But this notion that we gate it, that gives the, the right, if you will, for then a business development rep, which by the way, don't get me started on. Why do we think that someone who's very smart, but with no experience, first job out of college, is going to be able to sell to a CTO of Fortune 500? When did that <laughs> ever become? So don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> Quantity over quality. And by the, and by the yeah. way, let's just look at our various performance of inside sales orgs and, and look at the performance right now. The numbers are in, the numbers are clear, and the numbers are not good. Yeah. So like we're, and this is where I was asked the other day by someone, do I think we're in a recession or is this a business model reset or what do I think in technology? And obviously it's a complicated question because there's markets that are just going gangbusters There's some that are in their head above water. And there's some that are very challenged and it has nothing to do with the businesses that service them. It's what's going on in that particular segment of the economy. So I'm always careful to frame that. But my response was that just, you know, there's just too much of, there was too much of where money was obscuring very bad and inefficient processes. So yeah. nobody was actually stepping back to say, we have a hundred BDRs and SDRs, however, however you, you quantify them or define them. We've got another 35 reps and we've got 30, 40 people in marketing and we have a sales and marketing org of a couple hundred people or more and they're doing X amount of revenue. Does that even make sense? Is, is that the right way? Was there a more efficient way? No, it was just a part of a framework predictable revenue framework. So which by the way on paper is absolutely amazing and right. makes a lot of sense. Practical execution and actual the economics behind it very different. And anyone who wants to challenge me, I I'm going to ask to see your Salesforce data and it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> so see well, controversial no, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: Obviously, we're always looking for attribution and, and trying to figure yeah. out how do we you know, make marketing investments and, and then justify yeah. making those bigger or smaller. And we're looking for maximum ROI, which ultimately is sales performance. Yeah. So what kind of strategies do you recommend for really getting the most value mm. out of our marketing investments and, and yeah. finding that ROI and measuring it?
0: Yeah. So here's – and it's a fabulous question because – Even for the CEOs, the founders that are listening to this and they're like, oh, wow, what he's saying is so what we're dealing with. And and, and, and I get it and I agree with him. But at the end of the day, they're also going, but I get it and I'm willing to rationalize in my mind this a little bit softer tracking or definition of what is the impact marketing is having but at the end of the day and again thinking as a founder i have to explain to my board (laughs) hey how is all this tracking and so everybody regardless of whether you're the marketing leader whether or however big the org is, or you're all the way up to the CEO, it needs to explain. So attribution is always a challenge. Here's how I have found the best way to look at it. And then we can talk about maybe some more practical, okay, what do you actually measure? Yeah. So one of the challenges that we have, and, and again, if you are in a more direct response, selling psych, selling process, so Let's say that your typical sales cycle is 78 days, just make up a number. But in other words, this is like SaaS and it's a lower per seat license. And it's super, super easy for somebody to get in just with a, maybe not even a credit card initially, and they can start using the product and then they can grow. So it's a little bit easier to assign attribution because you probably can look what's, what marketing channels you're you're utilizing what your spends are what assets you're using in each of those channels. And so you can you you actually can get reasonably close saying hey, sure. we ran this campaign on LinkedIn, it was supported by this thing on Google search and then retargeting and and we saw this particular impact on that order page or that landing page or however you measure it and you you can come up with it. Boy, I wish I lived in in that world. The (laughs) challenge is that for everybody else, we're dealing in these sales cycles where you've got three, four, five, six, eight, 10, maybe 12 different people involved in the buying committee. You Mm -hmm. may only know who half of them are. Now you can argue and say, shouldn't we have the whole buying committee mapped? Yes, of course. And sales is always working to do that. But I just, most deals I've been a part of We've gotten to the end when we expected to close and a new person popped up. Yes. <laughs> you know. Yes, oh, happens. hey, we need to set up a call and have this person in this role. They've got some questions for you. And you're going, oh, no, <laughs> like we have no yeah. idea that person. Yeah, where were that... they? Yeah, exactly. So first of all, you have this challenge. Then you have the challenge that because of the length of these sales cycles and because of the shifting priorities inside these organizations. There is no organization that is impervious to incredible disruption of strategy and everything. So you have a further problem in that they engaged you 11 and a half months ago because there was a strategic decision, hey, we need to upgrade this workflow or we need a better way to do this. And so let's go out there and they engaged us. But meanwhile, Inside their company, that priority has been started and stopped and shifted maybe three different times, meaning mm. that the original team of people, now I'm getting to attribution, but I'm trying to paint yeah. why this is so hard and why the traditional attribution models just simply don't work. They either give false positives or false negatives, or they're, they're just wrong. So what happens is, in this scenario I just outlined with these longer sales cycles, big deals, is the original team that contacted you, one of those people might still have been involved, right? Because maybe this is an area of the workflow that they're directly responsible for, or they're the most senior Technical executive, or the most senior engineering principal, or whatever. And so they're carrying through, but all the people around that person are shifting. Some have dropped off. Some don't even work in the group anymore. Some have left the company. <laughs> like, and right. so now you got people onboarding and offboarding a part of this process. The problem is that you're trying to push. To 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 a close. Meanwhile, you potentially have people who are jumping on the buying committee who, by the way, they may not be able to say yes, but everybody in a buying committee, by definition, can say no. And I have seen way too many deals that didn't close because the no's, not because we didn't have the yes. We had the yes, but we had too many no's. And the no's outweighed the yes, even if that was the CTO of a Fortune 50 which by the and way is a them, real experience as, as a leader. that i Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really hard for them as a
1: leader when you get those no's to override yeah. that and say, we're doing this yeah. anyway, because then Correct. if things don't go perfectly, which they never do, no. then the team goes, Hey, you made us do this. We told you yep. not to. Yeah, so yep. It's, that's it's ex- a
0: very risky move. That's exactly right. And I had to come around. I used to be Boy, I don't know what the right word is because I want to present it correctly. I never would insinuate that a chief executive at a Fortune 50 or Fortune 100 was not anything but incredibly intelligent. But I used to have a view before, before this really locked in what the risk was to the company and to that chief executive to say yes when their team is saying no. I used to view it as almost a failure of leadership. Come on, you're the CTO of fill in the blank. Like you have 1500 people working for you, like just do the right thing and say yes. And (laughs) and, and it's very true. It's very true because the complexity of the systems that a lot of times these products and technologies going into, the disruption possibility, the risk is very high that one person can make a decision. Yeah, there could be a little bit of, of a hurdle in the implementation, a little bit rocky. Yep. And then guess what? The team's going, I told you, yep. there's nothing worse than I told you. So anyway, so let's get back to attribution. So I think we painted a very clear picture of why it is just in um, these, these ABM tools probably probably get the closest to giving some ability to try and map the journey. So, for example, whether it's HubSpot or any of the other very capable marketing automation platforms, as long as the the prospect, the lead is known in the system. And what I mean by that is as long as we have some identifiable information or even semi-identifiable, semi meaning maybe we don't know down to the exact name and email, but we know somebody from Comcast and this location is always right. hitting our website and we're tracking them. And we happen to know there's a whole lot of employees in Philadelphia, but of this sales cycle that we're in right now, there's six that are in Philadelphia. Okay. That's a good sign. We know it's a single person because the same IP address. So it's not, and they've. Hit our page eighteen times over the last twenty days, and whatever the metric. So you can create this. I think them as like is like signposts that give us indicators of where people spending time. How did we pull them in? Did they initially come in? So let's just go back to this this fictitious, but yet maybe not too fictitious. So we know that this is someone who works at Comcast. It's a single IP address because the system is tracking that. And obviously right. people can clear cookies and they can do all this. Nobody does. So that's the good news. <laughs> yeah. So we can track then the fact that they're hitting the website, what pages they're going to, how long they're how long they're on there. But we also can generally rewind to the very beginning and say what was the initial referral source? You know, oh, it was LinkedIn. We may not, that may be just where it starts. We have no idea. Did they click on an ad? Did they? And a lot of times we will even have that information. But the point is that you have to begin putting together the signpost. And yes, there's some manual work in this. Yes, there are some tools you can leverage. But at the end of the day, um, the organization has to be dedicated to measurement. And to analysis, Now, here's the rub though, is that the chief executive wants this information the day before the board meeting. The minute the board yeah. meeting is over, they're like, "What have you done for me lately?" And, and And they come with a whole list of, "Let's go to this event, let's do that. Oh, can we do this?" I don't know a marketing team anywhere, regardless how big it is. They're just sitting around waiting to do more stuff. They are fully utilized. (laughs) So it means then that now that person who... Who, by the way, if it's a big enough marketing team and it doesn't have to be huge, if you have even seven, eight, nine people, you're big enough to have one person who's dedicated to platforms and analysis and the digital. But guess what? Now all of a sudden it's, hey, Mark, I know you're busy on that. Really, we've got a, we've got to spin up some new LinkedIn ads. And oh, by the way, can you look at what's going on with Google? Where we're not getting as much inbound. Our our CPAs are going up. Oh, hey, and then when you're finished with that, let's go. Let's we need to think about Facebook. Book again. And so so the challenge is that to there has to be a real commitment to this analysis. I my view is this, and then we can maybe put a pin in it or talk further. I ran across, I just put this up on LinkedIn just last night. In fact, Steve Jobs said something super, super interesting in an an interview. It's like a little two and a half-minute clip from an interview, and he was asked about product and what makes a good product, product person and product design and product management. And he said, it's content over process. And he hmm. unpacked it further and what he said, and he correlated it back to, and I'm intentionally going to not name the company he named, but a very big technology company that Apple was hiring. Now, this is like 30 years ago. He did this interview. This is this is when he was came back to Apple, or it was almost 30 years ago. And he said that Apple had hired a lot of folks out of this very big, very well-known technology company. In fact, it's a company my dad retired with. And they came in with incredible process and just absolutely world-class, best of the best. The problem was they didn't have the content. Now, he Mm -hmm. doesn't mean content like movies, white papers, videos. What he means is that it's like you've got this amazing process. You can explain and define and you have data for everything. But if that's not connecting to how the user uses it, if it's not connecting to solving a need, if it's not connecting, and that's how he was using content, content, yeah. like, why does this thing even exist? Why are we building it? Do, uh, you, a mouse really, he used the example that he was told, absolutely insisted that they, Apple could not build a mouse for less than $300. That was the price he said in the video. Wow. He went and found a design agency that built it for $15. And so I think when we think about all of attribution and marketing, I think it's also really important to think about process versus content. Yeah. Process versus content, because we also can get all hung up on, but is there ROI in trade shows? Is there ROI in this activity? Is this channel, why is this channel down and we're paying whatever, an extra $7 CPM or a cost per action or something? It's like, maybe that matters. Most of the time, my experience, it absolutely does not. And by the way, if that extra $7 is gonna tank your whole marketing program, probably it was not the right, chances are for a lot of businesses, it wasn't the right program to begin with. Right. So yeah. we've gone on a lot of twists and turns here, Jeff. <laughs> I, I hope we're going to bring the plane in for a landing. Yes. Uh, Tell me about category
1: design. What is your approach mm-hmm. to category design and why is it important for tech companies to establish themselves in the market?
0: Yeah. So category design is really interesting. There's There, there seems to be a, a kind of two 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 beliefs, two parties, category design, you know, the camp, if you will, that I'm a part of, although I'm maybe a little more towards the center is that everybody needs to build a category. I believe that, but there's some important nuances. I won't say caveats, but there's some nuances to that. And then the other camp is category design is only for the richest companies and you design a category by just being the winner in a market. Meaning that like Salesforce, of course, oh, they're the category king or queen of CRM, but they're just the winner. Like it's impossible for anyone else in CRM to build a category. Yes, it's impossible for someone else in CRM, especially a fresh upstart, to come in and directly challenge Salesforce. That actually would be foolish. But what category design says is different than I think what most people understand it to be. And this is what it is. Let's go with a CRM example. Yeah, you want to take on Salesforce directly? Good luck. <laughs> even, yeah. if, even if you did raise a billion dollars. Like, it's just, and what's the point? What's the point? So why not look at it this way? Why not say, you know what? We have a very unique insight on the buying process of, I don't know, or or not the buying process, but the business of independent auto repair shops. Okay. And I'm making this up on the fly, but bear with me. Independent auto repair shops. These are the garages that we drive by on, depending on if you live in a big town, every other street corner, there's some yeah, shop. Yeah, everywhere. And you, yeah, they're everywhere, right? And some of them are really professional and beautiful signs and, and and others you're like that's literally somebody's garage. They're fixing cars out of. And no judgment on whether they're doing a good job or not. I'm just saying they're all shapes and sizes, right? Some are national chains with hundreds, maybe thousands around the country. Right. Others are just my my brother and my uncle who like to work on cars and They've been doing it for the last 15 years, making enough to keep the lights on. Cool. So what if we had a special insight in that? And what if that insight showed that these are not sophisticated businesses from the perspective that these generally, they're technicians, right? They want to work on cars. Right. They, they love it. They, But yet, they're real businesses. In some cases, these shops might generate $3, 5 $6, 8000000 million out of just that right. single location. You own three or four or five of them, and it's, hey, this is a very real business. And guess what? They have recurring customers. And oh, by the way, if you're doing oil changes, most people need an oil change. You know, sometimes every three months, but usually every six months, certainly once a year, depending on the car and how much you drive it. Wow, wouldn't it be amazing if we built the marketing automation and CRM system for auto repair shops? Yep. Wow. Now, okay. Now that's not super sexy at my local startup founders group. When somebody says, Hey, what are you building? You're like CRM (laughs) for auto repair. (laughs) They're like, Oh, okay, cool. I'm building the next Instagram. And my response would be, okay, cool. Good luck with that. Let, let's, let's meet back in three years and see how that next Instagram is going. But no, go with me on this thought exercise. So here's the point. So the point is that too many, and this is the essence of category design, too many founders start with the we sell to everybody. And ultimately, there's different ways to look at it. But one way to look at category design is it gives an intelligent narrowing of the scope of the market that you're going to pursue. Now, this also has the benefit that it helps you make product feature decisions. Now you're not in a situation where you've got 50 users, 100 users, 500 users, but it's everything from doctor's offices to auto repair shops, to landscapers, to whatever you go around, all the various. And so the doctor's offices have this, they're all asking for this thing. This other segment's asking for something different. And when your engineering team is running around, and of course the mantra from the CEO is wherever the biggest opportunity is, that's what we're going to build. Right. Problem is that you don't, by definition, you don't really know that, but you only have 18 doctors on the platform. Well, there's a lot of doctors in America. So you know that quote unquote, the TAM is big, but are we going to go win them all? I don't know. So it allows you to narrow and it allows you even the more beautifully is it allows you to tell a very clear, distinct story. Now, you hire sellers, and it's not, hey, go try and get deals. It's here's what we sell to. Our sweet spot are are those auto repair businesses that have one shop to five shops. They're doing a minimum of two and a half million dollars a year. That's the minimum. If they're doing less. They whatever. We just know that they either can't afford us or whatever. They're doing two and a half million dollars a year. And by the way, here's a list of. All the auto repair shops in America that fit that criteria, happy dialing. Now, that's right. grossly oversimplifying, but I'm not really. right. That's how simple it becomes. Now, all of a sudden, you're building this. Are you going to build a $500 million company on just that segment? Yeah. Uh, maybe you would. Maybe, because maybe you're going to find all kinds of adjacent products and services and you're going to figure out how to go up market and so sure. maybe but probably not but could you build a really amazing hundred million dollar recurring SaaS software business with probably raising a whole lot less capital than your peers 100%. and own and dominate that space I would say the odds are really good yeah. to that one so this is category designs. I know you probably expected me to jump into, oh, here's what it is. And it's develop a point of view and you have a lightning strike and that's all the mechanics of it. There's the mechanics, yeah. but this is the raison d'etre on my mind of, of category. So
1: That's fantastic. We'll wrap up with this. and I know there are a lot of companies that are listening and they're looking at, and they want long-term growth. Mm-hmm. And so they, they need that. They need a strategic marketing for long term growth. At the mm-hmm. same time, they need immediate revenue. And so yes. we've got to hit our goals this quarter. We got to hit our goals this year. So, how do you balance those two, mm-hmm. the, the long term growth with the urgency of I need revenue now?
0: Yeah, of course, because revenue is oxygen. And, and whether or not you're fortunate enough to be able to raise a lot of oxygen and it's stored away in the tanks or you have to earn it as you need it, which is like bootstrapping. <laughs> it's, it's, it's oxygen. I think sometimes these things are viewed as, I don't know, mutually exclusive. Oh, I can't build the future and earn revenue now. And a lot of this comes from that we're investing in the future. Look, the reality is that investing in the future should come with some evidence that there's revenue today. And so I almost would reposition the question or somebody said, hey, we're really struggling because we're investing in the future, but I need to make money today. My response would be, maybe you're investing in a future. It's possible that it's a future that's going to develop and that it's just not here yet, that's totally possible. But generally, there should be signs that somebody is willing to pay for what you're building today that is going to grow more significant or be a bigger part of, again, I put in air quotes, the future. And so I would initially start the conversation by just having a really serious and frank discussion around, why are you not able to... Get any revenue today, or why is it? I understand it may not be sufficient to fund the whole operation and all of the development. Right. That's, but if you're saying we're investing for the future and we have no revenue today, then I would really question the future. So that's number one. Yeah. I think that really what this comes down to, and there is no magic answer. I do not have a secret strategy that I pull out only for my closest friends and clients and share it with them. <laughs> I would say that it's really just as simple as, and it is simple, although simple is hard, right? Is to look really carefully at understanding, make sure you fully understand what you're building and where the opportunity is. Make sure you understand the building blocks to get you there. And I'm talking about this future, this mythical future. We're building for the future. Make sure you understand the building blocks and then try really hard to map. How can we start building or even build one of those blocks, but yet do it in a way that we can get paid today for it? It may mean needing to adjust your strategy somewhat. You may need to shift your market. You may say, wow, in our core market today, that's, that's not possible. If, if we were to pivot, it would mean having to do a little bit of product work. But if we were to go over here, that market needs right off the bat, these three things that are foundational to where we know we want to go. Right. Hmm, maybe we need to build those shift the market focus we can start selling there and then we're and now we're in closer alignment those are just some of the ways that that you can approach that i do not advocate for doing businesses that are too too far apart or divergent like you may have sort of a cash cow business so to speak and the cash cow may be just a five million dollar very high EBITDA business and then you're like hey we're gonna go do this other thing and it's tangential to the cash cow right. business and you're and so where there aren't synergies that that's where you can really run into problems because you, you can even run into problems amongst the founding team where they just get tired. Like how long, look, we're over here printing money from our cash cow business at 80%, 85% EBITDA. Meanwhile, we're over here just burning it, burning the profits, and we're not seeing a close correlation. And the minute that new business starts to slow down or stumble or people just lose heart, and then it becomes super easy to throw in the towel. Which is really sad because so many great business ideas and businesses never made it to even really the starting line. Like they were j- just almost there if they had just hung in there. But then it's like the entrepreneur throws up their arms and goes, I'm just tired of this. I, we wasted so much money over the last three years. I'm just going to go back to my core business and hey, I'll just be satisfied. Yep. So. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Mark, where can people learn more about you online? Yeah, my website is growthstage dot marketing. So G-R-O-W-T-H S T A G E dot Marketing. And if you look up Mark Donigan on LinkedIn, I am quite easy to find. So you'll I'll make sure I link both to of those in the show notes for sure. Yeah. And do you have a podcast? I have a couple podcasts. I believe it or not, the podcasts that I that I am co-host on and that I appear on are actually in my industry, so they're not marketing podcasts. If you happen to like video technology or you're just intrigued about how Netflix works and all that kind of stuff, I am a, a co-host of of a podcast called The Dan Rayburn podcast. He's a very well known analyst in the space. And Dan invited me to co-host with him. So I we kind of banter around the weekly news and video technology. And then there's another one that I'm on from time to time. One of the one of the primary companies that I work with called NetInt, they have a show that we launch called Voices of Video. And it's pretty neat. We do that one live on LinkedIn actually. Excellent. Yeah, so that it's a video show, and yeah, it's a lot of fun. So,
1: we'll make sure those in the show notes,
0: too. I'm always on various various shows talking about marketing and other things. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, thank you for being on SAS Fuel and talking about marketing. You're very welcome. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. Outstanding.
1: Thanks again, Mark, for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. You can learn more about Mark at growthstage.marketing. That's growthstage.marketing. And as always, all links, highlights, resources, full show notes are available at sassfuel.com. And check us out on YouTube as well. Lots of cool stuff there. have been recording on opposite sides of the country the past few weeks. SoCal all the way over to the nation's capital. So subscribe and follow the show wherever you are and you can get rewarded too. Everyone who subscribes this week gets a rock opera recipe book. Combines the culinary arts with the grandeur of Trans-Siberian Orchestra, good old TSO. Every recipe is a symphony for your taste buds with a side of head banging. Join us next Tuesday where our founder is Adam Robinson. I mentioned that earlier. He is founder and CEO of Retention.com. Adam shares the good bad and the ugly of bootstrapping a SaaS to 20 million in ARR and building in public while he's doing it. And I'll tell you a little sneak peek. You are going to love what he is working on now. It's something just for us SaaS founders. Very cool. And it's something you may be able to get done on a, a little beta. Uh, I'll share more on that next Tuesday and the next Thursday, one week from today, our SaaS fuel expert series. We have Jason Krueger founder and president of Signature Analytics. We'll be talking about data gaps, increasing productivity, boosting profits, and operating smarter in this new world of capital efficient growth, which some of us have been doing that for a long time. That's a really cool insights from Jason. So I will see you next week. In the meantime, listen to some great music. Remember Gary Hoey, TSO, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, two of my faves. And as always, enjoy the journey. See you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Sass Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sassfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com/sassfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.
1: Let's go!